Welcome to Fresh Take, where we at Florida Organic Growers speak to food systems experts about topics related to organic and sustainable agriculture, healthy lifestyles, and the environment. To help us continue our programs at FOG, including our podcast, consider becoming a sponsor. For more information on sponsorship, check out our Get Involved page on our website, www.foginfo.org. Welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Take. In this part one series of Feeding the Revolution, I will be chatting with Del Deshaun on addressing the origin of food sovereignty, what it means and what it looks like. Del is currently an instructor in religious studies at the University of South Florida and convener for the USF Urban Food Sovereignty Group. Del, welcome to Fresh Take. Oh, thanks, Lana. It's great to be here with you and all the listeners. I genuinely feel butterflies, Del, knowing that you are on our show today, because every time we speak, I feel enlightened and I've gotten, you know, I've had the pleasure to get to know you over the last few years through the Florida Food Policy Council. And today I want to talk about your beginnings because you've been a professor since 1986 and have traversed various topics, it seems, in your career. Can you delve into what motivated you to teach and how did you stumble upon this topic in your work? Sure, uh, Lana, that's uh, it's kind of a rather uh, long and somewhat detailed uh, narrative. Uh, so <laughs> I'll try to be as brief as possible and cut to the chase. I became interested in issues related to religion and culture, you know, years ago, back in the early 80s, when I was uh, an undergraduate. And I was interested in a question that still haunts me, which is what motivates people to uh, sacrifice themselves for others to the point of whatever sacrifice of their own being, their own body, as well as their family and family members to try to do good in the world. What motivates people to do that? But then also the reverse of that or the obverse of that, which is what motivates people to sacrifice themselves, their own body, their families, to do incredible harm to people. And I think that the answer to one is also the answer to the other. At least I've come to realize that over many years of work and research. And as an undergraduate, as probably many people my age experienced. We tried a lot of different fields. We were able to do that back in the days when higher education was more flexible and more open and kind of had more creative opportunities. So I studied philosophy. I studied literature. I studied uh, anthropology, hoping to get an answer to that question. And the answers that I was coming up with through research, study, and classes ultimately were not satisfactory. And then I stumbled into a course in religious studies. And was in that field of study that I found at least a, a platform in which those questions were meaningful. What is it that moves us to do incredible acts of, of generosity and beneficence and also what motivates people to do incredible acts of horror? And I stumbled upon religion and that, that became the area that I devoted my life to was the study of religion and really, uh, when we think of religion, we think of large institutional forms, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, or what I call the usual suspects. That's what we think of when we study religion. But what we're really studying are forms of sacred legitimation, the ways in which our culture and our society and our own individual lives are given meaning and purpose. 
And traditionally, that's been religion, historically and traditionally, until fairly recent times. Right. And in more recent times, other institutions have emerged that give that meaning, value, and purpose, and still function as forms of sacred legitimation and cultural construction. I don't get, want to get overly technical about it, but institutions today, such as government, politics, uh, the media, economics, are these institutions of the contemporary world that function as forms of sacred legitimation and motivate people to these very actions that are, uh, I feel, so critical to our understanding of individuals and culture. Acts of, of love, kindness, and beneficence, and actual, and then acts of, of horror and, and terror and injury to others and to larger cultural systems. Anyway, that's what got me into the study of religion was that kind of question. Initially, my area of research was new religious movements and more broadly, contemporary culture religion as it manifests in contemporary culture. And I started studying new religious movements, movements such as uh, Christian science and theosophy and Scientology and uh, International Society for Christian Consciousness and all of these groups that have come on the scene in the last century or so, a little bit longer than that. And over the course of time, as I studied these groups, I thought, it also became evident to me that really the area where these new groups were proliferating was in in popular culture. We all know these groups. I probably folks that might be listening would recognize some of those names that I just mentioned because they are so prevalent in popular culture, American popular culture. And so mm -hmm. my study of these groups morphed into then a deeper study of popular culture and the phenomena of popular culture, where I recognized the power of these other seemingly non-religious institutions to affect and color our world, politics, government, economics, the media, and the powerful hold that these institutions had upon us. As time went on, about uh, maybe 15 years ago now, my study of, of uh, popular culture and sacred legitimation brought me into contact with the study of ecology and the natural environment as a result of the deepening awareness that I have, and I'm sure many others do, of the ecologic crisis, the massive ecologic crisis that we have. And then in and through the study of the environment, ecology, uh, which I write on research and, and teach in, um, it became even more evident to me that at the heart of the ecologic crisis was a food crisis. And mm -hmm. so here I am. <laughs> Wow. The study of the food system and the study of the food crisis that we face with and the recognition of the importance of food sovereignty is really the result of a long journey over the course of my career. And then over the last decade or so, I've devoted all of my energy and will continue to devote all of my energy in terms of research and also my, my public sector work to what, doing whatever I possibly can to educate folks to the challenges of our current food system and the alternatives that are available to making it more healthy, more constructive, and really bring about healing as opposed to destruction and plunder. This is so fascinating, Dale. Honestly, just listening to you speak about these connections is mind-blowing because it is truly something that I think each of us stumble upon at some point in our lives in terms of how food is related to pretty much different aspects of society. But with your research on religion, literary and ecological expressions of agrarianism, 
and how they manifest in American popular culture, you've discovered something pretty critical. And we definitely know, I guess, in this country that, well, I guess some of us know that there are things that we're doing that are contributing to the ecological destruction that you're talking about. And I'm curious to know how your role as a professor kind of led into your role with the Urban Food Sovereignty Group and becoming more active in that kind of area. Well, sure. The work of the Urban Food Sovereignty Group, which I uh, know my colleagues, Will and Nicole, are going to talk about also as part of this podcast, part of this program. My interest in in kind of the work within the institution, within uh, University of South Florida, and, and broadly speaking in, in higher education as a whole, uh, emerged in the context of, as I said previously, uh, my academic research, my publications, and my study, and seeing the connection between agriculture and really the misuse of agriculture, especially over the last 50 to 60 years, mm. and how that contributes to the ecologic crisis. So I'm already working, I was already working in, in areas of contemporary culture, and specifically uh, study of, of environment in contemporary culture. So it was kind of a natural step for me anyway, to dig more deeply in terms of research and also teaching into issues that relate to the food system. And this is also happening at USF concurrently with our hiring of Will Schombacher, although he will uh, seldom acknowledge it, is one of the world's leading scholars of food sovereignty. And I was fortunate enough to be on the uh, search committee that uh, ended up uh, hiring Will. And that really helped me move forward in terms of my work at the institution, my work at the University of South Florida. And together, Will and I teamed up more than a decade ago. I guess he can clarify exactly how long it's been, but it seems at least a decade, maybe maybe 12 years. Um, we have been working relatively tirelessly at, at developing a curriculum of courses as well as experiential learning for students to dig deeply into regenerative agriculture, agroecology, uh, organic growing as um, Organic Growers Association, ways in which the uh, production of food can make a difference in terms of the environment, but also, and this is where food sovereignty per se comes in, also make a difference in terms of social justice, in terms of reconstructing this, the structures of our society so that they are more fair and more equitable and so that uh, individuals and groups that are currently disadvantaged, both in terms of food, but also in terms of social participation, have a greater opportunity. So uh, that, briefly, that's what got me involved institutionally at USF in what is called the USF Urban Food Sovereignty Group. Besides that, of course, as you know, Lana, I have been active um, in, my, uh, in my local community as well as at, to some degree at the state level in working to create opportunities for change in how we think about food production, but also how we uh, educate others about both the crisis that we're faced with, as well as the opportunities that we have to change that. So it's kind of like two tracks in a way, to be quite frank with you. Uh, one is my work at the university, which is research, uh, curriculum development, teaching, and then my work in the immediate community, which has to do with social organizing 
and the creation of opportunities within local communities for uh, essentially for the establishment of food food sovereignty approaches here. Right, right. Well, I love that you are involved in you know several phases of this topic, and um, not only are you you know helping to teach the public about the specific topic, but also you know you're dedicating your work to this as well. And for us to dive in to food sovereignty, I would like to know how how you define food sovereignty. It's such a large concept. And it, I think it is quite simple when you, you know, break it down. And that's what I think we're going to try to do in this episode. Sure. Could you um, help the, you know, listeners understand what food sovereignty actually means? Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to do that. The definition of food sovereignty in a technical sense, like many technical terms, is to some degree unstable in, in, in contemporary culture. Although there's some basic features that I think we can go over. And I'm going to just share a kind of a working definition from USF Urban Food Sovereignty Group, which is derived from really the, the root organization that propelled food sovereignty into the public imagination, and that's La Via Campesina. And this definition that I'll give is derived from the definition given by La Via Campesina. So food sovereignty as a working definition is the right and the opportunity of persons in urban ecosystems. And this is again, urban food sovereignty, the right and opportunity of persons in urban ecosystems to define their own food and agriculture policies and practices, and to produce healthy and culturally appropriate food through their own means, using ecologically sound and sustainable methods, independent of industrial food systems. So that's the uh, definition that we use for the urban food sovereignty group. And food sovereignty per se would have all of those same features, except it wouldn't include the word urban in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so um, this is derived again from La Via Campesina, definition that they put forward in 1993. And the roots of food sovereignty go back to the latter part of the 20th century, with the deeper roots going back probably into the, uh, into the uh, 1980s. Uh, with peasant movements in Central America. And these peasant movements, which are still going on to this day, we hear about the exploitation of both indigenous people as well as peasant farmers Mm -hmm. in Central and South America as a result of the intrusion of the industrial agriculture, the industrial agriculture system, and the giant agribusinesses, agricorporations that literally control our food system. And as these, as we moved in the, especially as we moved into the 70s and 80s, we saw the globalization of our food system and we saw the rising control of the dominance of these gigantic multinational food production corporations Mm -hmm. that had little regard for local agriculture, had little regard for traditions, had little regard for the people that were living and working the land that they wanted to appropriate for the production of essentially monocrops for export, mostly to the developed world as cash crops for the sake of the benefit of the corporate shareholders. Now, there are a lot of moving parts in what I just said. I'm happy to work back on it and unpack them a little bit if you like. 
Um, the definition that I gave, though, uh, kind of summarizes the the uh, the understanding of food sovereignty that I think most folks are working off of. But if you went online and and if folks did a search of different definitions, you might see some variation. But it really comes right down to the right and the opportunity of individuals and communities to define their own food systems, grow their own food, produce their own food, independent of the industrial food system. Uh, that would, again, that's a reduction of the definition. And as I shared just a moment ago, a little bit of context historically for it. And I can uh, dig deeper into that if you like. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to break this down a little bit further because for, for folks listening who are maybe not workers within the food system or not familiar with the beginnings and the current function and structure of our food system, I think it's worth it to talk about, you know, what what our current food system is and how this differentiates from food sovereignty. Because from my understanding, food sovereignty focuses on on several different principles, so to speak. And and one of those things is it being food for people and valuing food providers and localizing food systems and putting the control in the provider's hands so that they have control of land, seeds, water, uh, without privatizing natural resources and building upon the knowledge that already exists with these peasant groups. And so I'm, I'm happy you mentioned La Via Campesina because that is the origin how food sovereignty came into the public eye. And I just learned recently that it was in 1993 that the peasant representatives came together in Belgium yep. and, you know, um, decided to found La Via Campesina, which actually translates to the peasant's way. Yes. And now they define themselves as the international peasants movement. Yep. The quote that I read is from that that original definition put forward in 1993 at the organizational conference of La Via, La Via Campesina. And the slight modifications that we made in, in that original definition is to include urban in, in the definition. And that was actually a strategic, it was a very conscious decision that was made. There were really like two slight modifications that we made in terms of our own work. One was the ad addition of the idea of urban ecosystems, but also the addition of the concept of an opportunity to do these things. Mm -hmm. uh, the original definition uh, does not include opportunity, it just it, it has the, the very strong and powerful word, the right of persons right. to do this sort of thing. Well, rights are great, but without the opportunity to act on those rights, there are no rights at all. For example, and I don't want to get too far into a uh, political or cultural conversation or ideological conversation at this point. In USA culture, for example, we may have the right to free speech. Mm -hmm. But if we don't have the opportunity to express that speech, then there's no right at all. And I would... I point out that the same would be absolutely true of of food production. You may have the right to produce food, but if you don't have the opportunity to do it because you don't have access to space or access to resource or access to education about how to produce and grow the food, then it is no right at all. So I just wanted to like add that one little wrinkle. And the other wrinkle that I'd add is the importance of of recognizing that 
food sovereignty as defined in the passage that I read, and that is easily available through La Via Campesina, that very often the idea of food sovereignty is reflected on, engaged, and encountered in the context of communities and individuals far away from us in Central America, mm -hmm. in South America, in other parts of the developing world. Hence the La Via Campesina, the peasant's way, as you accurately defined. Well, it may be the peasant's way, and it absolutely is the peasant's way, but it's also the same way as people that are living in a food desert or a food apartheid area in an urban center. That may be very much the experience, uh, the oppressive conditions that persons in urban centers are experiencing who are completely divorced from and may have been divorced for generations from the land and by no means would would uh, you know meet the definition of what a peasant farmer would be. So those two elements, I think, are important, especially as we begin to think of food sovereignty in the United States of America, but especially in the gigantic, the massive urban centers that we have here, where access to good, healthy food is, for many, uh, non-existent. And then, to stress the term again, the opportunity then to produce one's own food is also non-existent. So food sovereignty in that regard also becomes a social justice movement in which we say, well, we have the right to do it and we should have the right to do it, but we also need the opportunity to do it. And so that then becomes the work of food sovereignty as a, a project, both in terms of research, in terms of teaching, and in terms of, of public action, it also then becomes a policy initiative. Right. And you're familiar with the work of the Florida Food Policy Council, and I'm on the Pasco County Food Policy Council as well. Policy is where we create the opportunities that are necessary to activate the right to food production and individual control and power over our food opportunities. Exactly, exactly. And I, it's so... I'm so happy to have you today because everything you were saying is really hitting the nail on the head. I think, you know, our listeners are going to benefit so greatly from this conversation because it's hard to to really digest, uh, for lack of better words, how our food system really runs. And yep. and internationally, we do have various systems that work and but at the end of it all, we are reliant heavily on immigrant workers, on peasant workers, on this group that has been displaced uh, from their own land um, in many cases. And it, it comes with a lot of knowledge on how to grow food in a way that's good for the planet, in addition to be, it being good for the people. And currently we are faced with a system that is more focused on corporations. And like you had mentioned before, um, monopolization of food has become a thing due to industrialization, monocropping, which is growing the same type of crop in the same land over and over again and depleting the nutrients from the soil. So this is something that is, I think is critical for us to understand. And I'm so glad that you're going into detail. And I want to know this movement started in 1993 and the first global forum on food sovereignty was in Mali in 2007. So how do you think this movement has made its way to the United States? 
Well, I think that, you know, that, that's a good question. Obviously, the roots go back to, uh, you mentioned 1993 with uh, the Villa Campesina and, and uh, the Mali Conference of 2007. Those are big time events that kind of get the, the concept and, and the idea out there into a, a broader audience. But I would suggest and advocate to recognize that what we call food sovereignty today is really traditional agrarianism as it has existed and had existed in the United States since its origin and indeed existed throughout the world. The destruction of indigenous cultures and indigenous food production systems in the developing world by the intrusion of industrial agriculture and these giant monopoly corporations that you mentioned. And the data on that is stunning. And I, I hope we return to that in a moment. But that is only the latest phase in the destruction of local food systems. What's going on in Central America, South America, is also happening in South Asia, in India, and in Pakistan. It's happening throughout the world. It's happening in the Middle East. It's happening in North Africa. It's happening in Europe. It's happening everywhere. The first place where it happened, the destruction of local food systems, was in the United States of America, going back into the earliest part of the 20th century. But the industrial food system, the roots of it, go back to the early part of the 20th century. Then, as we all know, around 1960 with the Green Revolution, it ramped up and became internationalized. But the roots of it go back to the early part of the 20th century when we saw the rise of industrial methods of food production and the beginning of the destruction of local food systems and the impoverishment of local farmers. Mm. So uh, as far as the, the roots of it, I would say that food sovereignty as it's conceived of today is a new, uh, a novel term that refers to a traditional way of food production and community life that has been going on for, well, for, for 10,000 years, really. Right. But in a, a significant sense, in USA culture, from the origin of USA culture and the arrival of a settler colonialism in America, uh, that these these systems in place build communities in and around food. I mean, you can read it, uh, you know, Tom, Thomas Jefferson's work and recognize that his ideal was an agrarian ideal that was based on uh, small communities built around local food production. And Jefferson was doing it too. Jefferson was a food, a food sovereign, if you will. Mm -hmm. Banner under which these this earlier form of, of, of life and food production occurred is agrarianism. So agrarianism really, I would argue, is the root of it. And that would bring us to our greatest agrarian, uh, Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry's, you know, legendary work in advocating for localization of the food system. Mm. Berry... Uh, who has a ha, had has a farm in in uh, in Kentucky, uh, and practices regenerative agriculture. Literally saw the dismemberment of his own communities and and his own world with the rise of uh, of industrial agriculture. And then, of course, this was <laughs> expanded dramatically throughout the in, uh, entire country and now throughout the entire world. But Barry's advocacy for agrarianism is to me akin, or not even akin, it's identical to the advocacy that we see that, that goes under the banner of, 
of food sovereignty and the work of La Via Campesina. So the roots of it in USA culture, the roots of it, I would say, go back to traditional farming methods that were practiced here in USA culture and the communities that grew up around them. And the impact that we see from the global industrial food system on other parts of the world today that are getting a lot of attention, a lot of energy, that happened in, in USA culture a century ago. The process began a century ago here and and indeed continues on up, up to the present day. So that would kind of be my take on it, that it, this is, in a way, this is nothing new, but the reaction to it on a large scale, uh, in a large scale manner in USA culture is something new. Goodness knows over the, over the, uh, over the, the 20th century, throughout the 1900s, there were agrarian movements. There were efforts of farmers to fight back against industrial agriculture, against government intrusion, against corporate intrusion, into their communities. Right. And that, that has always been going on. Uh, William Jennings Bryant, the, the great agrarian populist, uh, has, a, has a great line. He says, your, your cities are built upon our farms. Tear down your cities and overnight they will spring up again. But if you destroy our farms, grass will grow in the streets of every city of this land. That's a food sovereign expression. That's an agrarian expression. That's a challenge to the industrial urbanized model of food production. Uh, so the roots go back uh, to the last century and continue on and perhaps are simply getting more fervor and more energy associated with them now. And I would argue, last point I'll make here, is that the energy around food sovereignty in USA culture today is, to my in my assessment, my analysis, and my recognition is occurring in urban centers. It's happening in cities. Certainly it's going on in rural areas as well, but especially in cities with the drive for the opportunity of individuals to grow and produce their own food independent of intrusion from outside forces. Right. Yes. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And it's funny to me how the answer seems to lie in our history as far as going back to agrarian roots and these small producers, small farms, small business models that are tending to the natural resources in a way that are more respectful than, you know, what's happening today with just the exploitation of resources. And I think splitting food sovereignty into two different branches of challenging the current food structure and empowering the people is is where the main points lie. And under the point of empowering the people, we see that there is the right to food idea that also lies within food sovereignty. And could you possibly discuss what that actually means and what that looks like as well? Uh, well, there in the United States of America, there is no right to food. The various amendments to the Constitution enumerate certain rights that people have, but nowhere in that uh, list of rights is the right to food. Mm. You have the right to free speech. Yeah. You have the right to practice religion. You have number two, which is getting so much press right now and uh, horrible narratives. Um, uh, the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms. All of these are rights. You have a right. You can go to court and you can argue for these things. And uh, you can litigate on it and you can demand action from the government as as often happens. But nowhere is enumerated that there's a right to food. Mm. So when sovereignty comes on the scene and says <laughs> and advocates for the right to food, it's doing something that is 
in in and of itself challenging the uh, the status quo, challenging the uh, the, the, the social construction reality that we live under. Right. Nowhere can you find a right to food. You can demand it. You can ask for it. But there's nothing that's going to give government and policy backing to your demand unless there's a change in constitution, unless there's a change in something at either a local or a state level that makes that an absolute necessity. So that's that's where I would begin with the idea of the right. And then again, to to reiterate the idea that a right without an opportunity is no right at all. Mm. The example I always use is the right to, to free speech. You may have the right to free speech, but if the government muzzles you and says there's certain things that you can't talk about, especially in certain professions and certain areas, there's no right at all. Mm. And hence, it's the responsibility of policymakers and government and larger institutions, such as um, corporations and um, educational institutions, universities, to create the opportunity for the rights to exist. Those that are enumerated, such as free speech, as well as those that are not enumerated, such as the right to food. Mm. So I think that tying rights in with opportunity is of critical importance. And that's where the policy piece comes in. You don't get the opportunity unless you create the opportunity for it. And it happens through policy initiatives. Importantly, food sovereignty puts right the right to, you know, an independent food system that is based on community uh, practices and, and led by local individuals. It's critical to what food sovereignty is all about. And yet it's hard. It's difficult because of the existing systems that we're dealing with. So the piece that says advocate for opportunities, advocate for the right of people to grow their own food is a critical part of it. Mm -hmm. But tied into it is also a challenge to the existing order that precludes that in, in so many areas and for so many people. Yeah. And I mean, we are, you know, this this topic is so, so important that we decided to split this into two parts. Part two is going to be covering participating in food sovereignty and what what it looks like in action. And we touched on a few things already that highlight, you know, participating in food sovereignty, which is, you know, localizing food systems, um, supporting small scale farmers, challenging large corporations. But how do you realistically see our domestic food system incorporating food sovereignty principles? Or do you see that happening? By any means necessary. Um, you enumerated uh, earlier some of the key principles of food sovereignty, the focus on food for people, values for food providers, localization of food systems, local control of food systems, building knowledge, which is education, and then working with nature and also the ideals and principles of agrarianism. I think that if we keep those before us in all of our actions, each of us will make better choices and each of us can contribute, perhaps in small ways, but also possibly in large ways. This, again, uh, is a, a gigantic topic about, you know, uh, you know, what is to be done. That's a, I do a lecture on on mangoes in Florida in summertime and the subtitle of the lecture, which is kind of the subtitle of all the stuff I do, uh, is uh, what is to be done mm -hmm. if we are aware of what these challenges are then what what are we going to do about it and that can be uh, that it's that is a daunting question and it, often it is a question that folks ask with a sense of pessimism or dis, 
discouragement that we don't see how we can get out of this mess. We can't see how to get out of this crisis that we are all part of. It's a cultural crisis. It's not an individual crisis, although it leads to individual crises. Mm -hmm. But it's a cultural crisis. Uh, Frederick Jameson, the great uh, scholar of capitalism, refers to consumer capitalism as an infernal machine, that it's a machine that we're, we're stuck in. It's a system that we're stuck in. We're like a hamster on a wheel, that we can't get beyond the system itself. It's the only reality we know and it supplies the sources, the very sources of our existence itself. So we can't see beyond it. Uh, again, I make the analogy then to the idea of, a, of, of sacred legitimation, a world that is so defined for us that we can't think beyond its confines. Mm -hmm. Well, this world that we're in now is defined by mega corporations. Certainly the food system is defined by that, but also our consumer products. Everything that we use is made by someone else far away often in exploited conditions, often in ways that are destroying the environment, often ways that are plundering and destroying uh, animals and other creatures that live in those environments. And yet here we are, we're stuck with it. So what do we do? What do we do? We keep consuming, I guess. We got a new flat screen TV or we go out and buy a new car. Wendell Berry, a great scholar and advocate that I cited earlier, has a very insightful um, recognition, a very insightful analysis of our contemporary culture. Barry says that for two generations, we have lived with the costly luxury of living thoughtlessly about our existence. Two generations, we have two generations living thoughtlessly about the sources of our existence. What are the sources of our existence? Most minimally, it's where our food comes from, a source of our existence. Mm -hmm. Minimally, it's where our water comes from. Minimally, it's where our clothing comes from. In those categories, most Americans don't have an answer. They don't have a clue. They don't know where their food comes from. They don't know where their clothing comes from. They might know where their water comes from. And in this situation, then what are you, what are you, what are you able to do if you want to, you know, flip the script, if you want to change the ref, if you want to change things, how do you go about doing that in this situation where you don't even know where to begin and you don't even know where the food comes from? I'm sure that will and Nicole and others would remind everyone that the food that's on our plate, on average, travels 1,500 miles mm -hmm. from the source of its production to its presence on our plate. And I think that that, that number, 1,500 miles, is, is an understatement. I, I think that, for the most part, it's much more than that, especially because so much of our food is processed and it comes from various sources, all of which are traveling an average of 1,500 miles. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know who grew it. We don't know the conditions in which it was grown. We don't know the impact on the environment where it was grown. Right. We don't know what the factories are like where it's packed. We don't know the exploitation of the individuals that are involved. And we don't know about the, the toxins that are involved in the transportation of that food 1,500 miles. So these situations present folks with just a pessimistic uh, future. I want to go to just for a moment and uh, offer suggestions in the context of uh, hadith, a passage from the Prophet Muhammad, the uh, the, the Prophet of, of Islam. Uh, uh, there's a hadith literature which deals with his teachings, his sayings, his life, kind of like what you'd see in uh, in the New Testament stories of Jesus if you were a Christian. Anyway, a grower goes to uh, Prophet Muhammad and says, Prophet, at, at the end of time, at the end of the world, uh, in Islam the term is the hour, 
when the hour comes at the end of the world, when God is going to come and have his way with the earth, if I'm planting a tree, what should I do? And the prophet says to him, keep planting the tree. At the end of the world, which may be for some people is where we are right now. I'm not suggesting that we are, but for some, it may seem that way. That right. There's nothing that we can do. And we're heading over the cliff. What do we do? And the answer to the question, the most simple answer is plant the tree, do whatever you can with the resources you have and the time that you have to make a difference, small or large. That's where we start. That's the general principle. Yes. I would advocate and suggest that if you want to do something right now, volunteer for a group practicing principles of food sovereignty, a community garden, a local regenerative gardening project, learn food canning, anything that is uh, any group that is committed to these principles now. And they are there. They are out there. They're in the tri-county area of Tampa Bay where where I live and work. Virtually every community is going to have some sort of group that's doing that. Number two, give as much time and energy as you can to such groups. And if you don't have time and energy, give money, give resources to groups that are doing this sort of thing. In both of these cases, you are working with others. These operations, these projects to try to change the world and establish food sovereignty or other principles of a more human type of existence are not solo acts. It can't be lone wolves. It must be all of us working together to the degree that we possibly can. And I recognize that that's very challenging in these times because there's so much tension between different worldviews and ideologies. But if you enter into a group that is committed and dedicated to even minimally minimal activities such as food production, whether it's growing your own food, whether it's learning how to can, whether it's working with other people that are doing these sorts of things, do that and you can let the other noise uh, go away. Third point. What else can you do? You can talk to people about food sovereignty and its principles. Talk to, to the degree that you can, to government officials and every candidate running for office who wants your vote. Get involved, get engaged. And often if you're involved in these different groups that we're talking about, that they themselves already are probably active in these areas and doing things that you can lend your voice to. Work with others to establish these principles in your family. Work with others to establish the principles of localization. You gave them already, and Nicole, we can just run, run through them again. Focusing on the food production, valuing the producer, localizing the food system. Put the principles into action in your own life, but then in your family's life as well. Where do you get your food? Where do you go to shop? Where do you get the, the value-added food, the, the canned foods? Where do you go to do it? Most people go to one of these outposts of the industrial food system, which are called grocery stores. <laughs> There's five giant corporations that control the retail distribution of food. Five in the world. Five control them all. And yet, in most communities, you might be able to find a farmer's market. You might be able to find a locally owned grocer. Go to those places first. Make that your first choice for the food that you buy. Find the local farmer's market that genuinely is local, that has local farmers that are that are selling their, their food. I will put a little plug in for our town of Newport Ritchie that has one of the oldest uh, local farmer's markets in the area. And that market features farmers that are all local. You can meet the farmer that's selling the food and you can go to the farmer's place where she or he is growing the food 
but that's just you know a, a one that uh, a local market that I'm familiar with. But there are others like that where you are. And if there's not, then work to establish one. Shop at farmers market with truly local produce. Support local growers by direct if you possibly can. Find the urban gardener that's growing food and go to that person's place and just buy the food from that person. And then maybe last but not least is grow your own food and invite your neighbors to help grow them. Those are like practical steps that can be done um, individually in answer to the question, what can be done? So if, if the world's about to come to an end, keep planting the tree. If you think that all is lost, then get involved in something that gets your mind off of the concept of things being lost. Absolutely. Thank you so much for shining the light at the end of the tunnel, Dell, because it, it, it does seem very daunting at times to try to tackle these kinds of problems that we're facing in the food system. And, and that's what we're trying to do here also at Florida Organic Growers with several projects um, highlighting the local food system, one of which I'm going to be coordinating, you know, to help connect key actors across the state um, and forming more meaningful relationships and developing more avenues for small farmers to sell their products and, you know, still be a part of the economy. So I really appreciate you mentioning the ways to participate, ideas to start to begin, you know, participating in the food system and, and food sovereignty. And Dell, it was really an honor having you on our show today. Your research and work is invaluable and your impact, I'm sure, widespread. We really appreciate your time and joining us on our show today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lana. It was a pleasure to be here and to share this time with you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this part one of Feeding the Revolution, Food Sovereignty 101. Make sure you check out the resources we share today and we'll share on our website as well. And make sure to join us for our upcoming part two episode that dives into food sovereignty in action. Until next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Florida Organic Growers is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So to keep our content available and free to the public, we need your help. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. And consider making a tax-deductible donation or become a sponsor. Learn more about our work and how you can become a sponsor from our website, www.foginfo.org.